Hello, everybody. Today's guest on the US Sports Podcast with Max Whittle, Sports Illustrated's Mitch Goldich. Yes, come on in. Stay a while. Episode 10 of the US Sports Podcast with me, Max Whittle. A bit of housekeeping before we get going. You can find the US Sports Podcast on Audioboom on its official page and also on iTunes. And you can get in touch with me at Max underscore Whittle on Twitter. It's been a crazy seven days in American sport. and I can't wait to get to my headlines at the end of the show after our guest Mitch comes on. Uh, Chris Sale has signed with the Boston Red Sox. A week that we saw Clay Thompson score 60 points in 29 minutes. Seattle Seahawks lost Earl Thomas and he won't be back uh, this season. Already talking about retirement, Mr. Thomas. David Ortiz is talking about coming out of retirement because Chris Sale has signed in Boston. And we've got the college football playoff, which is all set and ready to go. Today we have writer and social king Mitch Goldich of Sports Illustrated jumping onto the podcast. And as a Philly native, it gives us ample opportunity to talk about sports in that area, which is a mixed bag to say the least. You probably won't be betting any money on the Phillies anytime soon. But talking of betting, the US Sports Podcast is sponsored by our partners at redzonesports.com, the bespoke British bookmaker for American sports. As well as the best odds on US sports, money can't buy prize promotions and their very own cheerleading squad, you can get an exclusive £60 deposit match bonus as a new customer by using deposit code USSP on your first deposit. That's code USSP. Red Zone is for over 18s only. Betting should be fun, so please gamble responsibly. Here we go with today's guest, SI's Mitch Goldich. Joining us on the US Sports Podcast, he's in New York and has a job I'm sure every sports nut would love to have, Mitch Goldich of Sports Illustrated. Hello, Mitch. Hey, Max. Thanks for having me on today. No, not at all, not at all. That's a bad surname you've got yourself there in terms of bad as in good. Um, do you know how Goldich came about? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> uh, go for it. Why don't you tell me? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I oh, thought I, I thought there'd know. be some family just... story. <laughs> no, no, not really. You sounded like you had something to tell me. I was like, <laughs> uh, maybe I, uh, <laughs> I was like, maybe I have long lost uh, British ancestors in, in royalty that I'm about to learn about, <laughs> but I, I guess not. I no, wish I, I had uh, that story for I you. I don't know the full etymology of my name. Sorry. To, to, I, it took like 30 seconds for me to disappoint you with not having an answer to your question. Well, that's all I wanted to have you on for, Mitch, so thanks for... All right. Well, thanks. It was a great <laughs> show. <laughs> no, apparently Whittle, uh, my surname, is uh, the, the jet engine was invented by Whittle. That's what I know about. I don't think we're related, though, sadly. No, I don't think so, but uh, I don't know. If we find out, I'll, I'll go to Ancestry.com. I'll let you know. <laughs> good man. So you're a Philadelphia native. Um, it's probably a good idea if you gave us your background in journalism and how you got on board with SI before we go any further and talk about uh, Philly sports and the whole scene there. Sure, I can do that. I can start with, uh, I can sort of give the, the short uh, version of the story, but like you said, I grew up outside of Philadelphia. I was uh, born, I was raised in the suburbs. And I've just always been interested in sports, and I think I've known for a long time that this is what I wanted to do. Uh, even when I was in high school, I was writing about sports for the paper, and I was actually the color man on the high school football games for our school district local TV channel. And uh, and then just you know worked my way up from there. Went to college, worked uh, wrote for the school paper, and then uh, you know I, I was sort of doing a lot of writing and and blogging sort of on the side uh, for my full-time job for a little while out of college. 
Um, but I was uh, I was doing a lot of writing, and eventually I went back to school and I got my master's in journalism at Northwestern, and then um, SI was my first full-time job after uh, finishing grad school. So my job there is primarily in social media, but then uh, it's a great setup for me because I can also do a lot of writing and podcasting at SI and some of the other things that I have experience doing, but... Um, but yeah, I, I uh, you know I have that other experience as a writer, and I've I've freelanced and had stories published in a bunch of places. Uh, so I don't need to like rattle off now, but um, you know that's sort of the the short version of how I ended up at SI, which is a uh, you know I've been reading Sports Illustrated since I was a very little kid, and if you had told me when I was nine that I would work there when I was 29, I'd be very very excited. And so it's awesome. I try not to take it for granted when I uh, walk in the door every day. Yeah, it's pretty cool as well. You mentioned high school. I mean, here in the UK, there's not really an opportunity to cover school sports because it just isn't as big. I don't know if you've got, if you've under, if you've seen anywhere other than America, really, because college sports over there is so big, and it's such a great thing. I hear a lot of reporters that make it in that industry. They've covered sports in high school, even below that college, and it's a really good way to kind of bed yourself in. Yeah, some of it. Uh... Some of the attention that high school sports get from uh, mainstream media is kind of crazy to me, and that's not something that I'm particularly interested in covering. But it, you know, it's, it's such a big business where the top high school basketball players in the country are soon to be the star freshmen in major college programs. That recruiting and football is such a huge industry that so many people cover, and that's not something that I uh, spend too much of my time paying attention to. Um, you know, back when I did it, it was just kind of a fun thing. And, we, you know, we didn't have a ton of NFL prospects on the field, but it was just kind of fun to be up at the booth and, and call the game. And my friends and parents would listen, and, and uh, you know, probably not too many more people than that, maybe the families of the players. Um, but, yeah, it's amazing how many people, and, and college sports, like you said, is just enormous. And that's, uh, you know, I don't cover college sports as much either, but uh, definitely, you know, I, I follow along and, and pay attention and, and as you said, there are a ton of people who make a whole career just covering college football or college basketball, and they're just enormous over here. I think that's why players, when you see them, especially the NBA, the work that I do, the players, were they obviously have to talk to the media, and they're used to it by now, and you've got the locker room access. But I think that's a huge part of it is the players have done it for so long. They have to do interviews in high school. And I, I remember going over to the States about six, seven years ago to a junior uh, community college to play some basketball, and all the players there were telling me that they have to do interviews as local reporters. And I was very surprised because when you look around you at the facilities and the, the, the level of talent there, it's surprising that there would be anyone covering the team. So maybe that's why your players are very used to talking in the media because over here, especially in soccer, a lot of guys really can't be bothered with it. They, they don't talk very well. They, give, they spill out the next cliche and, and that's, that's the end of it. Yeah, and it's probably good because, I, I mean, it's good to have that experience because, uh, you know, I, I know the team, they have to train their new guys and, and make sure, especially like you said, the younger uh, rookies and other young players, make sure that they're ready because, um, yeah, it, it's, it's very easy for somebody to say the wrong thing. We see that now so much with Twitter, too, because so many of these kids, and they're just they're high school kids and they're tweeting whatever they want, and then five years later they end up and they're in the NFL draft and uh, I feel like this is a story every time there's an NFL draft or NBA draft where, let's say, somebody is, uh, you know, bashing Tony Romo and the Cowboys, and then they get drafted by the Cowboys, <laughs> and everybody somehow, at the same time everyone finds these screenshots, 
and they're like, oh, this guy's going to be awkward when he meets Tony Romo or, you know, other other examples or even just people who are saying inappropriate things about parties in high school or parties in college and that, uh, or, you know, uh, certain words or, or things that they don't want to use. And, you know, it, it, it's amazing. People do get some of that media training if you're really like one of the top uh, athletes in the country and you know you're uh, on this track. Uh, you know, I think people get prepared for that. But so many of these people are just kids and they have no idea that they're going to go pro someday and they're not uh, necessarily thinking that what they say can get them in trouble and, and that, you know, the media, nowadays media finds everything. They found, you know, I'm an Eagles fan and followed Carson Wentz and he made some stupid YouTube video of, uh, like, throwing, uh, like, crumpled up papers into a trash can and, like, making trick shots and it was like a parody of the trick shot videos. And, like, on the eve of the season, everybody found this old video of him and his high school buddies screwing around. And it was funny. It wasn't anything bad, but it, it's just amazing how, you know, people find everything. And, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it's all discoverable. But I remember as well, Larry, Larry Nance Jr. made a comment about Kobe Bryant. Um, I think it might have gone back to the Den- what happened in Denver, Colorado with Kobe. And yeah. Larry joined but- Bryant for his last season last year. And I'm sure that could have been quite awkward in practice. And I'm, I'm a, I imagine if it was Kobe 10 years previously when he was still in his prime, then that would have been really, really bad. Yeah, that's a good example. And especially something, a sensitive issue like that. And, you know, I'm sure Kobe... Uh, you know, Kobe, I'm sure, doesn't want uh, to to get questions asked of him about that during his final season, although I, you know, feel it's certainly uh, the media's right to ask him those kinds of questions. But, yeah, the, those kinds of awkward situations that uh, come up with things that you might have said about a player or a team or a fan base 10 years earlier, and, uh, and that's what happens. So you said you're a Philly native. Uh, the 72 steps, uh, steps sorry, that make their way up the Philadelphia Museum of Art, better known as the Rocky Steps as everyone sees them in the films, I bet you reenacted that every morning before school. How many of you and your friends, when they came to visit you, wanted to go and do that? Yeah, I don't know that I have reenacted it on my, uh, in the mornings on the way to school every day, but I've definitely been to the museum and run up those steps uh, at least a few times. Um, I've seen all. I love the Rocky movies. I've seen all of them uh, probably at least a dozen times, including the new one, Creed, that just came out. I saw it in theaters uh, twice, and then watched it again when I bought it on DVD. But yeah, I think when I was in high school, I ran a 10k race that ended right at the Rocky Steps, and I have a photo of me with the Philly fanatic at the Rocky Steps, which is about uh, as silly a thing as you can have. If we were holding cheesesteaks, would have been the only thing to make it a better uh, stereotypical Philly picture. But, uh, but yes, I've, I've definitely done the Rocky Steps, and uh, if, if friends, I'm not in Philly anymore, but if I was in Philly and friends wanted to visit, I'd be happy to show them. I'm yet to do it, but I will. Um, so from 2001 to 2003, the Eagles went to three straight conference title games. Uh, I think that was around the time I started getting into the NFL, actually, and Donovan McNabb was one of the first players that I at- got attached to. The year after he went to the Super Bowl, AI led the Sixers to the finals back in 01, and the Phillies were dominant in 2008. Are you a follower of every pro sports team in the city or just a couple? Yes, all of them, especially those three. Uh, of the four sports, the uh, the four major sports here, uh, the NHL is sort of last on my yeah. list, so I do uh, you know follow along when the Flyers are in the playoffs. But, yeah, I'm a, a hardcore, diehard, uh, especially Phillies, Eagles, Sixers, uh, pay very close attention to all of them. And, and that was uh, that stretch you were talking about. It was basically me from eighth grade to twelfth grade. Uh, when it was it was awesome having Iverson and, and McNabb and all those teams were good and then uh, the Phillies got good when I was in college and uh, just 
when I was uh, just outside of college is when they sort of had that awesome window. So when Sam Hinkie was appointed in 2012 uh, for the Sixers, you were already stumbling as a team. Uh, I say you're, you weren't playing for them at the time, I don't think. But when did you know the Sixers were going to... I was practice, uh, practice <laughs> squad. I was, I'm trying out for the team. <laughs> <laughs> when did you know the Sixers were going to start tanking? <laughs> um, I That's a good question. I'm trying to remember the exact timeline. Um, I don't know that I knew right away how drastic it would be, but I definitely was on board with a rebuild, and now it's called The Process. Uh, that and came a little bit later. But I was definitely pro Sam Hinkie from the beginning. I remember watching his introductory press conference, and you know the Sixers had just been mediocre for so long. And they had one season they were an eight seed, and then Derek Rose got hurt, and so they were able to upset the, the top-seeded Bulls in the first round. But I think people looked at the team as closer to be, to contention than they really were because they said, oh, well, they, they beat the Bulls, they made it to the second round, and then they actually uh, you know, gave, I think it was the Celtics, um, that they, they gave a tough battle in the next round. But they, you know, they weren't ready, they weren't there, and they, they were not close to actually winning a title. So, you know, I was on board with, uh, doing something different and, and bringing in a new guy. I knew that I didn't know much about Hinky before the Sixers hired him, but I uh, knew that he came from Houston, and I've been a big fan of Daryl Morey, who's the general mm-hmm. manager there. So I'm, I'm a big fan of analytics, really across all sports, and, and Daryl Morey has uh, sort of that cult following, and, and you know he'll speak at the Sloan Analytics Conference every year, and uh, you know he has a reputation for being very smart and thinking long-term, and so... You know, when the Sixers brought in uh, a new general manager who came from the Rockets, and then they brought in Brett Brown as the coach, who had spent a lot of time in the Spurs organization as an assistant under Popovich. And I said, okay, you know, they're bringing in smart people from well-run organizations, and I'm going to give them a chance. And when they started making moves, you know, trading away players like Drew Holiday and Michael Carter-Williams and clearing the deck to, you know, bring in, uh, eventually bring in some stars, I was fine with it, and I, I understood the patience. The first big draft was the year that they drafted Nerlens Noel, even though he was already injured, and they said, well, he might not play, but uh, we've got him. And, you know, I, I gave Hinky the benefit of the doubt for a long time, so, you know, I read a lot of writers. There were some who were very fiercely divided, some who were in favor of Hinky, some who were against Hinky, and I gravitated towards a lot of smart writers who, uh, like me, agreed with Hinky and the process. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people just kind of continue to dig in on whatever side they were already on. And I know that I dug in even farther on uh, the pro-Hinky side and, and defending him. And, you know, as it became more and more extreme, it also became more and more clear that what they were doing might eventually have a payoff if you were willing to be patient for it. Yeah, sticking with the SI theme, Chris Ballard uh, wrote the piece about Sam Hinky just recently, um, after the process, it's called Meet Sam Hinky Version 2. So if you could sit down with Sam Hinky and you had one question, what, what would that be? Oh, wow. Um, I'm, still, I'm still 100% a Hinky loyalist. Um, I'm trying to think of questions. Honestly, it's hard because Chris Ballard did such a good job with his story. And, you know, sometimes, like... You know, as a writer, you hear about other people who are taking on projects and stories, and you think, like, man, I, I wish I could do that, or that's the kind of piece that I would love to do. 
And so it's sometimes it's frustrating when you see something that has holes and you're like, ah, you know, this is left unanswered. And sometimes it's, it's nice when somebody does such a good job that you say, oh, that's, you know, that might be better than what I would have done. So the other thing about Chris's piece, he really looks forward a lot. And it sounds like uh, Sam might not be able to talk about certain things because mm-hmm. uh, Chris mentioned that he has a non-compete and isn't allowed to talk about Sixers ownership. So those are, you know, the kinds of questions that I would ask um, are probably just about the actual decision to resign because he did resign. A lot of people talk about him sort of being forced out. He was, a lot of people think he was kind of like forced to resign because of the way the team brought in the Colangelos and, uh, and they were, you know, Hickey was not going to have as much power as he had had in the past. And so they sort of, uh, you know, pushed him to the point where of course he would resign rather than stay around in the kind of situation they were putting him in. So my questions would probably be just around that timeline and, and, you know, maybe when he knew that he needed to step aside, um, things like that. Things, things that he probably wouldn't be able to answer. <laughs> but I enjoyed reading from Chris looking at spinning him forward, what's his life like in California? And, you know, I thought the piece made it clear that, uh, that I think, think he's going to come back to the NBA and take over a team, which maybe some people questioned when he, uh, when he left. Um, so, you know, it was a good forward-looking piece. I might ask a couple of those questions looking back, even though he would probably, maybe off the record he'd be able to tell me, but on the record I'm sure he wouldn't because otherwise Chris would have asked those questions. Yeah, I mean, because Chris left the story, really, that he would be back. You didn't get the impression through the whole piece until the end that Hinky would actually want to entertain an NBA offer. Certainly wouldn't take an assistant GM job. Um, but I think... But the, I, I think he'll be back. And, yeah. and, you know, one of the things, a lot of people thought that... Uh, and maybe not the people I pay attention to, but a lot of the conspiracy theorists and others uh, thought that he'd be, like, blacklisted because of the relationships he built around the league with his trades and with agents and player reps and all that kind of stuff. But uh, Chris had a few quotes from other people around the league, including mm-hmm. Daryl Horry, actually, who said he would hire him back in a second, but Sam probably wouldn't take it. And, you know, hearing some of those quotes and seeing that it's, this guy's not going to be blacklisted, you know, there other people in the league would hire him. There will be opportunities for him. So it's, it's hard to imagine he won't. I, you know, I've never spoken to him or met him, but it's hard to imagine he would be back in the league. Yeah, it certainly did it because of the situation he was in, but it's because of the competitive, well, the lack of competitivity that he had on that team. It's whether a team that isn't in a situation where they need to tank would actually bring Hinky in. Yeah, and that's one of the debates is, you know, would he have done a good job building the team up once they got good? And some people, I think, made the unfair assumption that he wouldn't be able to. Um, you know, we've never seen him in that mode. We, we saw him, he was very good at bottoming out and stockpiling assets, and they drafted a few guys. You know, they earned the right to draft uh, Ben Simmons, uh, thanks to the record last year. Hinky didn't actually draft it, but that was kind of a no-brainer to take him number one. But they put themselves in position to get guys like Embiid and Ben Simmons, and he made a couple of very shrewd trades, including the big one with Sacramento. And, um, you know, I think that uh, just to assume that because that was all he had done, that he can't do it the other way, I think it's really unfair. I, you know, I think about Brian Cashman on the Yankees, and this is obviously a very uh, different situation, but, uh, you know, the Yankees have always been good throughout Cashman's tenure, and he has always been a buyer at the trade deadline and trying to get the best free agents. And then last summer was really one of the first times that Cashman and the Yankees were sellers, and they were trading away guys like Andrew Miller and Chapman, although they just got it back, and uh, who else? Uh, Carlos Beltran. And, you know, people hadn't really 
seen Brian Cashman uh, work that angle from the other side. And a lot of people thought they did a very good job, and it certainly seems like it. And, and, you know, I'm not a prospect expert on all the guys that they brought back, but I think he got some really high marks on some of the moves he made. And just to assume that because Brian Cashman for a decade or whatever had only been a buyer, to assume that he wouldn't be able to be a seller is really unfair to him and his Billy's GM. And similarly, you know, with Sam Hickey, to to assume that he wouldn't be able to put together the team that puts them over the top. Once they have stars in place, can he, you know, sign some big-time free agents or, you know, even just shooters and defenders and some of the, uh, you know, periphery pieces around some of the young talent they already have? To assume that he wouldn't have been able to do that ever is really unfair to him because he seems like he's frequently the smartest person in the room, although I know that great on some of his critics. Um, but, but yeah, you know, I would have been happy to give him a shot to do that. Well, to watch Joel Embiid this season, something else. And I really, I think everyone in Philadelphia and the NBA in general was hoping that Ben Simmons can come back healthy because to see those two together would be fantastic. The arena has been energized by him. And when he's not on the court, everything goes a little bit flat. He's been very impressive to watch this season. And Lee... A little bit flat. That's very, that's very nice of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not there, but I can certainly see it. Lee Jenkins wrote a piece about Embiid before the season, talking about... It's an incredible story. The, the fact that he played uh, volleyball and football. He didn't play basketball till very late. His brother, little brother, died between uh, surgeries when he was in Philadelphia. And the way he's come back, his personality, he's a very funny guy, very witty, uh, and he's got that real Hakeem Olajuwon style about him. What have you made of uh, Joel so far, and, and has it re-energized the fan base at all? It absolutely has. He has been everything that fans could have hoped for. Uh, you know, when they first drafted him, he was very funny, and he's, he's a great follow on Twitter, and he's making jokes, and he's tweeting at Rihanna, and he's talking about uh, about the Sixers, how they should sign LeBron in free agency, <laughs> even though everyone on earth knew that wasn't going to happen. And, and he's making jokes. He's a very funny guy, which was awesome at the start. And then I think after he didn't play for two full seasons, there were definitely some of those people out there who said, okay, you know, time to put it away. You know, the jokes aren't funny when you're not getting on the court and, and, you know, people who he started to wear on. And the fact that he's now back and he's on the court and he's playing great and he's still funny, it's like now he's sort of turning into this beloved figure. I have friends who root for other teams in the league and they all love Embiid and it's almost like, you know, it's not fair. Like, he's ours. Like, Philly gets to love him. You're not allowed to love him as much as we do because it's been so cool to see him uh, play and play so well. And he's only going to get better because, like you said, he's, you know, he's barely playing basketball for uh, – you know, he played for a few years and he missed the last two. Don't you worry about him, very though. smart. You get, you get that yeah. feeling when you watch him. Don't, just don't break down. Yeah, of course. Anytime – like, I was, I was there for opening night. I actually wrote a piece for SI.com about – that game and the whole experience and the atmosphere. And, you know, there's a moment where he hits the floor and it's just like everybody collectively, you hear the, you hear the whole arena gasp. And, you know, I don't know if that'll ever go away, but they're being very careful with his minutes. And, uh, you know, he's been on a minutes restriction for most of the season. It was 24 minutes per game, and then they just upped it to 28. And they're doing things. They're holding him out of certain games. They're not playing him in back-to-back nights. And it totally makes sense because if you look at – his history, you know, he's never played an 82-game season. And, you know, even if he plays 50 or 55 games this year, that's still much more than he played, uh, you know, even in his injury short season at Kansas or back when he was in high school. So, and, you know, there's no rush for the team to 
you know, try to make the playoffs this year. If you look at the the deeper uh, statistics, you can see just the difference for the lineup when the, when the Sixers have him on the court. And that's all you can ask for. If he is a dominant player, then everything he, he did has to be worth it, especially Embiid and Simmons. If they are together a one-two punch good enough to create a true title contender, then Hickey's process uh, has to be worth it for me. And, uh, and you know, we'll, we'll see about Simmons when he gets on the court, and it would be nice if that's at the end of this year, although I, I feel similarly there's no need to rush him back. Uh, but it would be great to see him and Embiid play together. And, and uh, you know, so far one of the two has delivered, and if he can stay healthy and if Simmons is good, then the future looks really bright. Switching to the NFL quickly, um, have you ever been to a Cowboys Eagles game or a Giants Eagles game in Philadelphia? I have been to a Cowboys Eagles game um, back a few years. Um, I've been to a Giants Eagles game. I don't know if I've seen Giants Eagles in Philly, but I went to a Giants Eagles game in New York at the Meadowlands, which was actually a pretty memorable one. Um, it was in, uh, I think, 2003, maybe. It was the year that the uh, Eagles looked terrible the whole game, and I think they were down 7-3, to three, and then in the final minute and a half of the game, Brian Westbrook returned a punt for a touchdown. And the whole game, all the Eagles fans were silent, and the Giants fans were, uh, you know, cheering and, and trying to be loud. And then all of a sudden, after that punt return, I just remember all the Giants fans sitting down and I was all the way up in the upper deck with uh, with my brothers and my dad at the, the upper level. All the Eagles fans were up there, and all of them stand up and just go crazy. And it was like such a miserable game. It was not even fun to be at, except for this one play in the 58th minute just made everything totally worth it. And it's, uh, it's a game that Philly fans still talk about, and, and that was a really cool experience to see that at, at the Meadowlands. You must have seen some good fights over the years. I've heard, about, I've heard a lot about this rivalry. Yeah, some fights, some of that's overblown. Some of that also is, this is a bit of a pet peeve, but a lot of the things, uh, uh, you know, with fans happen everywhere, and I think they get a lot more media attention when they happen in Philly. Um, but, you know, yeah, people fight, people get mad, people take it seriously. Uh, I've never been in a fight, but I've been, I've been heckled and, uh, and dished it back a little bit. What's the definition of a Philly sports fan then? You obviously hear about it a lot and, and how the fans are. Is, is the stereotype correct? Are they, are they more than just passionate about their teams? Yes. I mean, <laughs> again, I, I could go on forever about the, the you know, uh, stereotypes about Philly sports fans. Listen, a lot of them are accurate. They, are, they, they can be very uh, loud. I, I, the thing that bothers me is when people say that Philly has, like, quote-unquote bad fans for doing things like booing their own players, which sometimes happens, but also happens everywhere. You know, Philly fans are very passionate, and they follow all their teams very closely, which is awesome. And to me, that's the definition of, uh, you know, a good fan. And they're going to be there, and they're going to support the team, uh, good or bad. And they do have this stereotype for being tough on opposing teams and players when they come in and, you know, heckle stuff and, and yell stuff at them and whatever. Um, and, you know, I think they also get kind of a negative reputation, again, about, like, booing their own players and things like that. Um, but, you know, if you talk to a lot of the athletes who have succeeded in Philly, a lot of them say that they love playing there and that it's the kind of place where if you're good and if you work hard and, and you know, play with that uh, kind of energy and enthusiasm, you're going to be loved in Philly forever. And a lot of them say the fans, uh, you know, force them, be, being tough on them forces them to, 
to stay sharp and stay on their game and work hard. And, you know, the athletes who are loved in Philly are, are loved as much as anyone. And, um, you know, there are enough positive examples that they can help counteract some of the negative ones of the athletes who said that they did not enjoy playing in Philly. So on to the 2016 team. Carson Wentz was Flavor of the Month back in September. That feels like a long time ago. They were all talking about him and comparing him to Ben Roethlisberger. And as we know, the NFL is a week-to-week league. Uh, what's happened since then, of <laughs> um, course? It does feel like a long time ago. A lot of it's the schedule, uh, which, which we knew at the time. They started the season against the Browns and the Bears who I think have combined for two wins this season. The Browns are 0-12, and, and I think the Bears are 2-10. Um, so, uh, so obviously it's a lot easier to look good against them. And uh, the, the weird thing was just that week three game when they crushed the Steelers and uh, put up 30-plus points on them and just blew them out. That was when hysteria really reached another level. And like you said, some of the Roethlisberger comparisons came uh, after they uh, they beat Big Ben. Um you know, it's a lot of factors. Some of it's the schedule. Some of it's the offensive line. Lane Johnson, one of the Eagles' best offensive linemen, was suspended for 10 games. And a couple other guys got hurt, shuffled around. And, uh, you know, you know this from following the league. Uh, a quarterback is often uh, as good as the protection the offensive line gets him. And if your offensive line is a mess, it's going to make your life a lot tougher out there. Um, same thing with some of the other skill position players. He really... Uh, doesn't have great pieces around him. Ryan Matthews has been in and out of the lineup uh, with some injuries. The wide receivers have been dropping passes. Now we can't, you know, I, I'm not going to excuse Wentz of all of his uh, regression back to the mean because he definitely, uh, you know, people are talking. Other people are better experts than I am on his mechanics. He's not making the same kinds of throws that he was earlier in the season. And, you know, yes, it, it sucks when you make a good throw and the wide receiver drops it. But early in the year, it did look like he was putting the ball in in, uh, in places, and, and maybe who knows? Maybe he's forcing it, or he's uh, he's pressing. But um, you know, even though this season hasn't really worked out as well as people had hoped when the team was three and zero, I think there's still a lot of reason to be optimistic about him in the future. Um, the defense has uh, fallen off a bit in recent weeks too. So you know, a couple of those close losses, if they become close wins, then probably the quarterback is taking a little less heat because that's kind of a thing where QBs are frequently judged on their own one-loss record, even though there are, uh, you know, 52 other guys on the team. So, you know, he has, he has definitely slid down, but he's shown flashes. There was that first drive. They had a Monday night game against the Packers, and Aaron Rodgers had an incredible first drive, and then Wentz came right back and marched the team down the field and had an awesome touchdown drive, and then I don't think Eagles scored another touchdown the rest of the game, but you look at that drive and you say, okay, this is the quarterback he can be. And a lot of rookie quarterbacks struggle. And, you know, if you look at what he's capable of when they put more pieces around him as he grows in the offense and plays more seasons against NFL competition, I think there's still plenty of reason to be optimistic about the future for not just him but for the team with him. Is the Super Bowl winner or one of the Super Bowl teams coming out of the NFC East? Ooh, good question. You're basically saying, are, are the Cowboys going to the <laughs> Yes. Because I don't think Washington the Redskins clip or the it. Giants are. Washington's good. You know, so many teams have a chance. And that's, you know, I love the NFL playoffs, but I don't look at them as a Super Bowl contender. Um, you know, they can surprise me. They can go on a run. You know, the last two times that the Giants did it, uh, I didn't think they were, and probably nobody did. Um, if the question is, will the, will the Cowboys make the Super Bowl, they've got as good a shot as anyone. I 
picked Seattle to win the Super Bowl going into the season and have thought for most of the year that they will at least win the NFC and go to the Super Bowl. Um, you know, I'd want to wait and see how Seattle looks without Earl Thomas, who just got uh, hurt and is out for the season after their last game. But um, I'm giving you, <laughs> I'm giving you such a wishy-washy answer. You just want a yes or no. <laughs> yes or no. Da- I'll Dallas in the I'm, Super Bowl. <laughs> and I'm hedging. If I'm betting yes or no now, I would say no. Um, and part of that is part of that's just a math game. And you know, if you're doing any one team versus the field, I'm going to take the field because they're going to run into other good teams like, you know, possibly Washington, but also like Seattle or, you know, Atlanta or, you know, Green Bay can sneak in. I know that they've had uh, some struggles this year, and they're in second place a game behind Detroit. But still, if you uh, end up playing against Aaron Rodgers, those Packers in the playoffs, and if they're hot, then that's a tough game. See, no one gives the Lions any love. If you're saying yes or no, my answer is no. But they uh, they are the favorite out of the NFC, that's for sure. If I could give you a mulligan, then would you still fire Andy Reid? Ooh, that's a good question too. I uh, mean, I lo- I love the job he's done in Kansas City. I think he's a, I think yeah, that team is really job. underrated. I was pro Andy Reid for a long time, and I still really like him. And I'm happy for him because Kansas City wins the Super Bowl, and he becomes the Super Bowl winning coach. I think that would be awesome. I think some people in Philly would be bitter about it. I think it would be great and, and good for him. Um, I, w- I supported him until the very end, and I think there were people who wanted him fired even years earlier. I understood why they did it. I don't know that I would. Uh, I don't know that I would take a mulligan and change that decision. I think the decision made sense at the time. Um, but I, I've always been pro Andy Reid. Um, but you know, I think at some point, sometimes you just have to change course, bring in a new voice, try something different. They had, tried the same thing over and over again and it wasn't working and you know they decided they needed a new coach and I actually really I know that Chip Kelly didn't work out either but I loved the Chip Kelly hire and I thought that was an experiment worth taking so it would be uh, pretty hypocritical for me to say they should have kept Andy Reid when I was so happy with the initial hire of Chip Kelly and so optimistic after his first year so you know I'm happy for Andy for him but uh, understand why they fired him when they did and you know I think that probably made sense Man, you've been so lucky with Chip Kelly and uh, Sam Hinkie. It was fun to watch. <laughs> it was fun to watch, the yeah. Time. And there, were, there were a lot of parallels about thinking outside the box and uh, coming into sports science kind of stuff and, and going after technology and, and uh, staying on the cutting edge. There were a lot of kind of running those teams from across the street from each other. And uh, even though you know they didn't win uh, any games, uh, you know, win a lot of games, uh, during the stretch when they were both in town. It was never boring. It was definitely fascinating to, to watch both of those teams. We're talking to Mitch Goldich of Sports Illustrated. Before we discuss LeBron James winning SI's Sportsman of the Year Award, I want to tell you about our friends at redzonesports.com. The US Sports Podcast is sponsored by our partners at redzonesports.com, the bespoke British bookmaker for American sports. As well as the best odds on US sports, money can't buy prize promotions and their very own cheerleading squad, you can get an exclusive £60 deposit match bonus as a new customer by using deposit code USSP on your first deposit. That's code USSP. Red Zone is for over 18s only. Betting should be fun, so please gamble responsibly. That's redzonesports.com for more information. So Mitch, LeBron James won Sportsman of the Year this year. In a year when we had the Chicago Cubs... Uh, James already won the award back in 2012, and it feels like 
Um, this year, he had a far better year. But I feel as the Red Sox won it in 04, the Cubs were the last great sports story and it was told this year. And I think they should have probably taken the award. A lot of people agree with you. Um, you know, it's funny. For two years in a row, uh, and maybe for longer, but the, the last two years it received a lot of attention. SI opened it up for uh, fan voting. And last year that was extremely controversial because uh, the fans, uh, much to our surprise, overwhelmingly liked American Pharaoh, uh, the horse that snapped the long Triple Crown uh, streak in racing and won the uh, Kentucky Derby the three fifths of the Belmont. And instead, I decided to give it to uh, Serena Williams. Actually, it was renamed from uh, Sportsman of the Year to Sports Person of the Year after Serena won it. Um, and then this year, there were other popular choices, and I believe the Cubs won the fan vote, um, and LeBron was given the award anyway. It's interesting. The fans seem to love that idea of when you break a long streak or drought, you've earned it. And that, because that's sort of like what happened with the Red Sox and American Sparrow and the Cubs. It's so hard, and, and this is the thing that, that bugs me, and, and uh, you know, because my job at SI is mostly in social media, so I'm pushing out a lot of these stories on our Twitter feed and Facebook page, and we're getting all these comments from people who are upset about it. And uh, what you have to realize is there were so many great candidates. I mean, this was just an impossible year mm. to pick. If you had said in January that the Cubs were going to be the best team in baseball all year long, and uh, win 100 games and then win the World Series in a thrilling Game 7, you'd say, oh, well, they're going to be the sports person of the year. And if you had said in January, well, LeBron is going to overcome a 3-1 deficit in the finals against the best regular season team of all time to win a title in Cleveland, you'd say, oh, well, of course it's going to be him. And, you know, looking at with 2012 being an Olympic year, I think Olympians win it a lot in those years, and Phelps and Ledecky and Simone Biles and Bolt are all great candidates. And so many people rallied behind uh, Ben Scully and Lester winning the Premier League as 5,000 to 1 underdogs. You know, just because your team or your player doesn't get picked, it shouldn't be taken as a sign of disrespect. And, like, we see that all the time with, like, power rankings. If, uh, if SI does power rankings 1 through 32 in the NFL, the fan of the team that's number two or number three says, oh, like, how come you don't have any respect for my team? And it's like, well, come on. Like, you're, you're second out of 32 or you're third. doesn't mean you don't have any respect. Like, just cause it's not like win or nothing. So, you know, I, I understand that's a tough call for the people who actually had to make that decision. And I, uh, I was not involved with that at all. Um, just but, put that you know, out there. Asking me who sh- if you're asking me, who, yeah, I'm passing the buck. Uh, <laughs> if you're asking me who should have won it, I mean, LeBron is as great a candidate as anybody. And, you know, maybe looking at it now with the way the calendar works and that the Cubs just did this in uh, late October or maybe it was like November 1st that they won, so it still feels very fresh. I can see why people would, uh, would want to pick them. Whereas, you know, maybe if the NBA Finals had just taken place two weeks ago and they had just come back from down 3-1, with his incredible performance, people might have a different opinion. But, uh, you know, I think maybe when we step back in, in 10 years, uh, the LeBron choice might make sense. Um, and, you know, I, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, uh, it's too good. One. It was an impossible year. And I, really, I feel for the people who had, to, uh, who had to make that call. I was all in on Vince Scully, but then Leicester City, I'm not, I know this is an award not just for Americans, but I feel like there is a slight bias there because I'm not, I'm not sure how many different countries really understand like just how incredible that it, it was it's not like the Cleveland Browns winning the Super Bowl it's even it's even more impossible than that it 
Leicester City to win the Premier League, they were bottom of the table a year before they won the Premier League. And they've got hardly any money. They've never won anything before in that regard. And to win a league where the teams are, uh, they're worth so much money now. They're spending so much more money than they are. Hundreds of millions more than Leicester City. For them to do it over 38 games, it was truly incredible. And this season, they're really struggling. So it was that would be another one for me. Um, but a bit of trivia for you then. How many uh, UK athletes do you think uh, have won the SI Sportsman of the Year as I pull up Ooh, Wikipedia? Uh, and I'm, I was going to say, I'm wondering if you have the answer in front of you. Yeah, so since um, 1954. Um, oh, boy, how many? Well, I'm trying to think. I would bet the majority of athletes to win are American. I know we just published mm-hmm. a fun story about in 2006 when they gave it to uh, Dwayne Wade instead of Roger Federer, and a lot of people felt that Federer deserved it, and some people thought that uh, Wade being American gave him an advantage, although certainly Roger Federer is a very... Uh, a very well-known name uh, around these parts. Um, British, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll just let you tell me. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll How about, I'll give you one clue. So, 1973, can you guess the sport? Somebody from the UK won it in 1973? Yeah. Mm. And it definitely wasn't football, soccer, sorry, because the Premier League didn't even exist. Yeah, I don't know. You give me the sport, maybe I'll be able to name them. Okay, so Formula One. Oh wow! Oh, I'm not gonna know. <laughs> <laughs> it was Jackie Stewart, but there was there was two two ever UK winners, and incredibly, the first ever award was uh, Roger Bannister. Oh, first ever Roger Bannister, right? Yeah, first sub four minute known mile. That one, yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, that I did know. That, yeah, that was the first one given out. Okay, so two in uh, two since 1954, you said? <laughs> We're doing well. <laughs> um, hey, last couple then. You did a podcast um, on the Olympics this summer. And I remember, because I listened to Audibles back when Don and uh, McLovin and you did it. Um, and I remember Don mentioning near the end of his tenure there that he, you, he, put, he walked past you in the office one of the days during the Olympics and you looked pretty pink-eyed pretty tired uh how was the uh experience doing that and what were the sort of hours you were doing well he's right i was very tired during the olympics but it was totally worth it um i i love the olympics particularly the summer games i always have and yeah so i basically um pitched them on the idea that we should do a daily olympics podcast uh, which sounds like a crazy idea uh, that you would need uh, a crazy person to volunteer to host. And luckily, I was uh, crazy enough to be willing to do that uh, with my co-host, Alex Abnos, a uh, co-worker there at SI. And it was, uh, it was nuts. We really, uh, so it was literally, it was every day, and we would just, we both watched the Olympics on TV and streaming online for probably like 16 hours a day. And then it was every night at about, uh, sometimes, usually it was like 2 a.m., sometimes it was 3 a.m. We would sit down in the studio and tape it and uh, just push it out right away and and publish it that night and have it available for people for their morning commutes or during the day at work or whatever. And it was just an incredible experience for us because it uh, it blew up and and did much better than I thought it was going to. We had a lot of success with it, but which is really cool to see. We were getting some great reviews, and we just built this community of people from literally all over the world. Like, there was a day we talked about um, the handball team in the Netherlands, and then somebody from the Netherlands would send us an email about it. And we got emails from people in Hong Kong and Australia and all over the U.S. One day, Alex mentioned uh, 
Anchorage, Alaska, and somebody from Anchorage shoots us an email about how excited they were to hear their hometown mentioned. You know, we had no idea people from Anchorage were listening. Um, but it was just a ton of fun for us because we sort of had that uh, outsider perspective where we weren't in Rio going to games and talking about what we saw and the experience. We were just two, two guys who were watching them all on TV and, and streaming online and consuming as much as we could. And, and we made a commitment to watch every single sport. So it wasn't like we were just focused on track and swimming and basketball. We were really spending a lot of time on judo and field hockey and rugby. And, uh, and that was what was fun is getting to really dive in on all those topics because you've got, uh, you know, 45 minutes to an hour every single night. So some days we're going to talk about what happened in badminton and, uh, and wrestling and trampoline. And uh, for us, it was a ton of fun. It was a great experience for me. It made the Olympics just a blast. And uh, and, it, and people like you who uh, who listened and followed along, it was awesome to, to hear from people like you who had uh, so many great things to say about it. That was I would happily do that again. Where, if you went back to your undergraduate and to now, um, where what have you seen with podcasts developing? It's been a fascinating advance in terms of how people follow and just sports now. What have you seen? Yeah, um, I mean, so much of it I think is just with uh, with smartphones, and that it's just so much easier to listen to them now. Um, you know, for so long it's been well, we got to have cool video and. Uh, and now everything's just mobile and portable. And, and, yeah, when I was in college, I don't even know if they had podcasts. I didn't really get into them that much until maybe three or four years ago. And now, you know, everybody has a podcast. If you have a podcast, I have a podcast. It's like if you're in the media and you don't have one, you know, what are you doing? Um, and, and it's incredible how popular they are. And, you know, there are just there are so many good ones out there. And, um you know, it's cool to see what people can do with it, and I love it. You know, I, I just spend so much time, especially being in New York, uh, and, and you know, actually I live across the river in New Jersey, right outside of New York, so my commute takes me underground, uh, you know, I'm in the subways all the time, and just to be able to have them while I'm walking around or commuting or, you know, on the subway, it's uh, it's great. I'm totally addicted. I've got like 20 that I subscribe to and, and listen to them uh, every chance that I get. So last one then, as we enter a new year, what was your favorite sporting event of 2016 and why? Favorite sporting event of 2016? Well, I'm probably tempted to pick something out of the Olympics. I mean, I feel like it's cheating to uh, to just say the Olympics because that's such a massive sporting event. But really, that one had a lot of personal meaning to me just because of the opportunity that I had to do that podcast uh, and how well it went and how much attention it got. Uh, you know, I think I'll, I'll look back at the 2016 Olympics as being a, a pretty special project and thing for me to cover. Um, you know, I, there are sort of different definitions of the word cover. A lot of times you think of covering them as like actually being there on the ground reporting, but you know, I certainly feel like I covered them and, and covered every minute of every day. So um, you know, when I look back at 2016, I think those summer games in Rio are always going to be the most memorable to me. Um, you know, if I'm thinking about other moments, I mean, certainly like the quote-unquote game of the year might be that uh, Villanova basketball game where they won the national title on a buzzer beater. And that was certainly really cool for the city of Philadelphia, um, even though I'm not, uh, I don't consider myself like a Villanova basketball fan, but that was a, a great Philadelphia moment, and it was cool that I have uh, a lot of friends who were really excited about that, and it was, I was certainly rooting for them, you know, um, and, and that was fun to see. Um, you know, so uh, so I think if I'm looking at, like, a specific game, maybe it's that 
Um, again, the Embiid's first game is another one that uh, means a lot more to me personally than to most other people, but because I had waited so long and supported Hinky and and uh, supported Embiid and then to actually be there and experience that in the arena and see it and write about it, that was such a cool moment. So those are those are probably some of the highlights that stand out to me. But, oh, man, there are too many. The Game 7 of the World Series <laughs> yeah, I'd be incredible. Ha- I was going to say, I'd be hard pushed say, to yeah, pick Yeah, I called the college basketball thing the, the game of the year, but no, Game 7 of the World Series was nuts. There are too many good ones. Sports sports are just the best. Like, you know, I agree. talked about all the sportsmen candidates, and there are, there are so many good ones. You could pick six different ones. You could pick six different, uh, you know, sporting events, and there, there's just too many to choose from. That's, and that's, that's what I love about it. We'll, we'll never run out of fun or interesting things to talk about. Well, that's right. You had the Olympics splitting Game 7 of the NBA Finals and then Game 7 of the World Series. That's quite incredible. I didn't even talk about Game 7 of the NBA Finals. Hey, that was a great year, man. I know, it was. <laughs> it was an awesome year. There, there, were, there were too many, too many great events. So I'll, I'm going to cop out and I'm going to pick the Olympics. <laughs> and that way I don't have to choose between the World Series and the NBA Finals, which were both nuts. Hey, Mitch, do you want to plug anything before you go? Uh, sure, yeah. So I'm on Twitter is probably the best way to find me, at Mitch Goldich, M-I-T-C-H-G-O-L-D-I-C-H. And that's the spot where I'm going to plug all of my articles and all of my podcasts. If you're not on Twitter, I have a Facebook page. You can just search Mitch Goldich Sports Writer. And same thing, I uh, I push everything that I write uh, and all my podcasts. And I do have a podcast, not for SI, but just on my personal website. It's called The Mitch Goldich Podcast. Again, everything's very simple if you just... If you Google my name, you'll find me. I'm, I'm very easy to find. But uh, you're welcome to subscribe to my podcast where I talk to a lot of people in sports media about their lives and careers and, and you know, pretty similar to the, the chat that you and I just had today. So if you're interested in more about, uh, about the U.S. Uh, sports scene, you can find me on Twitter and find my podcast, and that would be great. And uh, Max, thanks to you. This was fun. Thanks so much for coming on. It's funny because I used to listen to SI's Audible's podcast um, Don Banks and Andrew Perloff did the show and Mitch was producing the show and he'd come on and talk about various podcasts on SI, promote other things and then when Don left SI, Mitch was uh, co-host of that show for a little while and it was just really interesting to finally touch base with Mitch and, and hear the voice that I've heard on a podcast for a while. So uh, thanks for him coming on. Before we wrap up and talk about next week's show, the stories that I want to get to and first we're going to start with Chris Sale, who signed uh, with the Boston Red Sox. He will not be in Chicago any longer. Two benefits from the farm system, first of all, because Chris Sale going to Boston opens up this trend nowadays, and we saw it with the Chicago Cubs winning the World Series and having all that young talent. What they did was sell, sell assets when Theo Epstein came in in order to acquire so many young players. And you have the potential with all these young players to do something like the Cubs did. They'll all grow into great players and you'll win a championship. Or like Boston have done here with Chris Sale, sell some of your great assets to bring in a superstar. That's exactly what Boston have done. Dave Dombrowski, president of Baseball Ops, they're very aggressive. Uh, he's, he's done it with moves in the past, and he's done it again here. Chris Sale, let's get to the numbers. The last five seasons, he's gone 74-50 and 50 with a 3.00 ERA, 1,244 strikeouts in 1,100 innings. That was seven seasons with the White Sox. This is a guy who's going to have a great time in the AL East. Uh, if you go on the back of last season's record, he was 6-0 and against the AL East with Chicago last year. He's 27 years of age. When I saw how, old he, how young he was, sorry, I was very surprised. I thought he was closer to 30 than that. Five straight All-Star games, 
17 and 10 last year with 233 Ks. And the one that stands out for me, 226 innings. So the guy will give you 200 plus innings. And he's joining a rotation that already has lefty David Price, who stinks in the postseason, but will still give you great regular season numbers. And Rick Porcello. So you've got the reigning Cy Young Award winner in Porcello. David Price is a former Cy Young and then in comes Chris Sale. This is a dream team or almost a dream rotation. We'll see what happens with them. And I think it's important. The media, they like to anoint people as favourites and they like to anoint super teams before we've even started the season. Even during the season, it's dangerous to do. Uh, we haven't yet seen what's going to happen with the Golden State Warriors. We've seen it before with the Lakers. Gary Payton, Karl Malone, they joined forces with Shaq and Kobe. That didn't work out. LeBron, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, that did. Um, but I wouldn't like to say or predict anything for Boston at the moment. It's surely every single season, when you have the Yankees in your division, you have to try and win every single year. And that's what they've tried to do. They're second favourites behind the Cubs now because they have got this great rotation. They got swept out the postseason last year by the Indians. They needed more pitching. They certainly got it here. But what did the White Sox get? Now, the media look at... The now. They always look at the here and the now. What did this move do? What's it going to do instantly for the team acquiring the big name? But the Chicago White Sox, what will they have in two years? That's important to to spell out here. And you go back to the Cubs formula. I bet they've copied the Cubs formula because it's close to home, obviously being in Chicago. But they've seen what the Cubs have done in terms of bringing in assets, building for the future. Theo Epstein came in a few years ago and now they've won a championship. They're going to be favourites again. They picked up Yoan Moncada from the Red Sox, number one prospect in baseball. So it's a lot to give up for Boston. Out of Cuba, Red Sox gave him $31.5 million two seasons ago. They kept him from New York, essentially. Michael Kopech as well throws 105 miles an hour. That is a fast arm, but you have to ask the question, how long does that last? Moncada came in towards the end of last season. Didn't have a great spell, but he... Clearly, obviously, too young to be in the majors at that stage. But number one prospect in baseball says a lot. The White Sox also now open themselves up, though, to losing guys like Jose Abreu now that they've traded one of their big stars. And we're being told that this had absolutely nothing to do with some of the misdemeanors that Chris Sale and the White Sox had last year. Remember, Chris Sale uh, cut up one of the throwback jerseys that the White Sox were wearing on one particular game, and he was fine for that. Acted a bit like a petulant child. And Adam LaRoche, who retired during spring training because partly mainly because his son couldn't spend enough time in the clubhouse anymore he was basically banned kids were banned from the clubhouse and Chris Sale had something to say about that as well which didn't help matters in terms of relations but I don't think this had anything to do with that the White Sox clearly are looking to build for the future and look who popped up on Instagram when this deal was done big poppy David Ortiz he wrote a little status my god my boy sale to B-Town you guys Got me thinking. Well, don't think it's going to happen. Ortiz would have to put all the presents back in the in the closet and come back for another year. In this division, the Yankees were wise not to break up the budding nucleus that they've got going. Wait for a couple seasons before you really challenge. Don't give up everything you've got. The Nationals were close in this deal, but they weren't prepared to give up center fielder Trey Turner, uh, which who's arguably more valuable to them now than Bryce Harper is. But big move for Boston. Dombrowski again sets out the tone. Early in the season, we've had a couple of big name trades already. Aroldis Chapman has re-signed with the Yankees on a horrible deal, I think. But this was the big one so far. Chris Sale to Boston. That's a great top of the top three in the rotation. And they had to replace the runs that they will lose from Ortiz. They've got all those young guys, young bats in the lineup with Sale. They, on paper, 
and I'll say nothing else, will be one of the favourites going into the six, uh, 2017 season. So who saw Clay Thompson score 60 points in 29 minutes the other day? Let me repeat that. 60 points in 29 minutes. 11 dribbles in total for Clay Thompson. 90 total seconds he touched the ball. 46 touches. 60 points, 29 minutes. He left the game when the score was 114 to 79 with 1 minute and 22 seconds left in the third quarter. He had 21 field goals, 8 three-pointers and 10 free throws. Clay Thompson averages 34 minutes a game. And the question here is, should Steve Kerr have left him in to try and get at least a 70 points? It's a very uh, famed group of people that have got 70 points over a career. Michael Jordan never did it. His career high was 69. Listen to the names in the 70 club. Wilt Chamberlain, David Robinson, Elgin Baylor, David Thompson and Kobe Bryant. And I think everyone uh, understands that that 81 from Kobe is the modern day line, right? Everyone's chasing the modern day 81. And Clay Thompson was on a, just a tick under what the, the pace that Wilt Chamberlain set when he scored 100 points. Clay's previous high was 52. And this is the first 40-point half we've seen since 2003. This is the same guy, Clay Thompson, who scored 37 in one quarter last season. The Warriors absolutely toyed with the paces. And when Clay moves off screens and gets layups early, you know he's going to have a good night. And I don't think there's any better pure shooter in the, in the league, in the game. Forget about Steph Curry, Kevin Durant and co. I think Clay has got the sweetest jump shot. And when he gets it going, swish all the way. He's so underrated at moving off picks and moving off the ball. He likes to try and get in early and go for layups and get his groove going. But when he's open for three... Shoot the ball. Even if he misses five straight, shoot the ball. And I like how the Warriors try and get any of the players that go off involved as it goes on. I think a lot of times superstar teams can you know, negate each other from having a big night because they want their share of the scoring. But when the Warriors have someone off, are going off, Clay Thompson on this night, they look for him and they did. Should Steve Kerr have taken him out? Well, I think he was right too because this is a no-win situation for Steve Kerr. If he keeps him in, and Clay goes on to, to score 70, 75, 80 points. There's this thing in the NBA and, and the basketball world called the basketball gods. And the Warriors were running up the score on the Pacers, completely dominating. If Steve Kerr keeps Clay Thompson in, it's not the way the Warriors play the, play the game. It's not the way Steve Kerr plays the game. And he doesn't want this to come back to bite them down the road. I'm sure Indiana would get over it, and it's their fault for not defending correctly and well enough. But the Warriors and Steve Kerr want to keep things real. Clay said after the game that it's a shame that in his two record-breaking games, that was the 37 and a quarter, now this one, we're in complete blowouts. And the Golden State are just so good that you don't need to play in the fourth quarter if any one of those players has this good a game. But I think this would have been 80 if they'd have kept him in. And even to see him play 34 minutes, because he averages that over, a se- over the season so far. So give him five more minutes, he would have got over 70. But I think Steve Kerr... Did the right thing. What if Clay Thompson rolls an ankle if he carries on playing? Then you've got yourself a very bad situation, record points or not. But Golden State now 120.2 points per game on the season so far. The last team to average 120 over a full season, the 1984-1985 Denver Nuggets. So uh, looking good right now. And when Golden State play like this, I do think they are unbeatable. Talking of crazy performances in the NBA, Russell Westbrook now has six consecutive triple-doubles. Michael Jordan had seven straight back in 1989, and the record is Wilt Chamberlain with nine back in 1968. 
22 games for Russell Westbrook so far, 11 triple doubles. I love watching him play. The other day in Atlanta, Stephen Adams actually gave up a rebound so that Westbrook could go and get it. Talk about teamwork or stat padding, however you want to call it. There's 11 triple doubles combined in the NBA right now, and Westbrook has 11 for himself. This is the MVP case of all MVP cases. James Harden might end up the se- end the season averaging, you know, leading the leading the league in points scored and assists made. But Westbrook will have the best numbers if he averages a triple double, even a tick under. I can't see how you you can be any more valuable to a team. And then you look around the the rest of the team and the definition of the MVP. Right now, it goes to the best player on the best team. But when you're talking about true value, Ennis Cantor. 17 attempts a game. He's getting a lot of shots under the basket. Victor Oladipo has already hit 49 three-pointers on the season. Last year, he had 98. He's going to obliterate that. Steven Adams is also getting a lot of attempts. And Andre Robertson, all of his stats, points, assists, rebounds, steals, they're all up. They're all career highs. Yes, there are downsides to Russell Westbrook's game. He's turned the ball over 5.7 times a game. Against a recent game against the Pelicans, he had 10 turnovers. So that's a quadruple double, if you will. He's not a great shooter. He's a great scorer. But no other point guard in this league, I don't care who you are, Kyrie Irving, John Wall, Stephen Curry, Chris Paul, no other point guard could elevate such an average bunch of players. I really don't think so. No one on this team has averaged 18 points a game before in their career. No one on this team, apart from Westbrook, has been an all-star before. If they can add a shooter, I think this team can get to the second round. And I believe Russell Westbrook right now is the MVP of the league. So here's a question for you. What are the LA Rams doing? Despite yet another season at or below 500, the LA Rams have signed Jeff Fisher, their head coach, to a two-year extension through 2018. The deal apparently was agreed before preseason, and it was just signed during this season, and it's now just broken into the news cycle. Kind of left everyone in a state of confusion. Before the season began, Fisher hadn't coached a football team with a winning record since 2008. So far, his records with the Rams: seven and eight and one, seven and nine, six and ten, and seven and nine from 2012 to last year. This year, they're four and eight. And this from Lewis Bien of SB Nation: No NFL coach since the merger has ever had a losing record through his first four seasons and remained employed by the team. Fisher has already done that, and he's on his way to a fifth consecutive losing season. And he's two losses away from having the most career losses by an NFL coach. Dan Reeves has 165, Fisher has 164. I read an article in the Washington Post uh, the other day about how Fisher's accrued this record. And if you look at how he's achieved you know, this amount of wins, which aren't many, you can see why the Rams have given him a contract extension. There was things like strength of schedule. The Rams have had a really tough schedule since Fisher's been in the league. They've had an ultra-competitive division. The Seahawks have been to the Super Bowl twice. The 49ers have been to the Super Bowl and the NFC Championship game. Arizona won 13 games last season and went to the Championship game. So the Rams are in a tough division. So what? The other three teams in that division competed. You didn't. There's a reason for that. Les Snead, the general manager, has also had his contract extended. And it was an arranged marriage. When Snead and Fisher joined the team in 2012, they came in together And Fisher had a really interesting quote back at the start of this week. He was asked about Les Snead's extension, and this was his quote. I'm so busy here, I was honestly unaware he was extended. I'm being honest with you. I look at this as being my responsibility, the win-loss record. 
we need to do a better job from a personnel standpoint. So there you go. That that's a jab right there. Personnel standpoint, GM. Why aren't we bringing in the guys I need? Because Jeff Fisher's teams have been pretty good defensively. They're one of the worst offensive teams in the league this season. There's bad blood between Fisher and Snead. There, there apparently has been for some time now. But for Fisher to say this, he's never actually developed a quarterback that's been any good. The list of quarterbacks is pretty paltry though. Sam Bradford, Austin Davis, Kellen Clemens, Sean Hill, Case Keenum and Nick Foles. Not an A-list right there. Absolutely not. But the Rams had the number one pick this season. They picked Jared Goff. And we're going to have to wait and see how that project goes. But for Fisher to have another contract given to him. And obviously the fact that they didn't announce this when he signed it originally in preseason. Means that there was a chance that he would be laid off if they didn't perform this season. That has been the case. And yet it's the same old thing. Fisher gets rewarded. He said in preseason to his team that this wasn't going to be another season of 8-8. Eight and eight. The best they can do is finish 8-8. Eight and eight. They have Atlanta at home, Seattle on the road, and then final games against the Arizona Cardinals and San Francisco 49ers at home. The best they will do there is go 2-2. Two and two. They will finish with a losing record. Jeff Fisher has another contract. And LA football, oh yes, as promised, it's unpredictable, but not very pretty. Jeff Fisher does not deserve a contract extension, despite the tough schedule, despite the bad draft, despite the injury, bad luck. Every team has these problems. Every team in the NFL has a tough job winning every Sunday. The Cleveland Browns have not won a game this season, but they are in every game. It is hard to win in this league. Jeff Fisher should know that. The Rams owners should know that. And do not give me this this excuse that Fisher has really navigated the team's move from St. Louis to LA well. I don't care. Why should you care about that? They've had three temporary homes since they moved for pre-camp workout, for training camp, and now where they're based during the season in Thousand Oaks. Does that matter? Do you employ and pay a coach to make sure that guys are happy, their families are happy? Yes, it's part of the job, but the main part of the job is wins, and Fisher does not have enough to legitimise this, this contract. Neither do the franchise, and I think it's laughable. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks again to Mitch Goldich for coming on to the podcast. Next week, a very special guest. The Dallas Cowboys are flying high. And London-born Jack Crawford, defensive lineman for the Cowboys, will be joining me on the US Sports Podcast. You can find this show on Audio Boom and on iTunes. As always, have a great week all and enjoy the games.